Hi everyone, I'm Mark Cooper from Vivar RE and welcome to this latest episode in our Rethink Energy podcast series. Today, on Global Wind Day 2020, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Hogg, our Global Director of Wind Projects. Not surprisingly, we'll be chatting about all things wind, including challenges and opportunities as we emerge from the current health crisis. We'll be tackling a few of the questions most frequently searched online about wind power, and also looking at what's around the corner for emerging markets and evolving technologies such as offshore wind. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please check out other podcasts and content at rethink-energy.com and follow us on social media to join the debate. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Good to have you, Katie. And a nice, easy question to get you started with. Um, <laughs> Global Wind Day, as we, as we look around the world today, some parts we see starting to slowly emerge from the current health crisis. Other parts of the world still very much in strict lockdowns. What we are starting to see in the media, particularly in Europe and the US, is a, is a huge debate starting around the economic recovery, stimulus packages, and the green transition, and a phrase coined by the UN to build back better. A difficult question to start with, but what's your, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, that's um, it's a really big discussion, for sure. And I'm, I'm really happy to see this debate. And I think many of us will be particularly those already committed to renewable energy or sustainability or other socially beneficial industries. If we can use this moment to bring in a broader perspective of how we should be living and what we should be balancing alongside economic growth, then I think that would be a great step forward for everybody, for our society. And I think we've all seen how the COVID crisis is such an unexpected and unprecedented situation for most of us. Of course, there were some warning signs and people who'd said, oh, this, this is something we should take care of. And now, as we've seen, it really has hit everybody's life and the economy massively. So we, we really hope that will be brought under control and that we can move forward to a better, brighter future. I expect there will be changes in the way that we live and work for a long time. And then related to what comes out of that positively, so what will the legacy of that be? It's certainly not a simple topic and not an easy thing to resolve for any government or any society. But looking at where we are now and, and the discussions around stimulus packages and building back better, then in my view, I think for sure it would be great if those packages were used to ensure that the recovery of our societies and economies is indeed green and that we are benefiting society in a different way than before and more deeply. So not just green energy, but of course, health and well-being, they're so critical as we've seen. Why not focus more on that and just generally balance supply chains, more local sourcing of goods and people and services? Why not try and give that more emphasis instead of, as we have done in most markets, just focused on the lowest cost of delivery? And in focusing on that, we also didn't think not just about health and well-being, but the environmental and personal impacts on people. So I think if we can take that into account somehow, then that would certainly be a step forward for us all. And just thinking about climate change, as everybody's got this on their mind right now with the discussion around building that better. The topic of climate change and the need to make massive change has been publicised. It's scientific communities behind that. We have the IPCC publicising what we need to do to really keep the temperature change from pre-industrial times down to 1.5 degrees now instead of two and really avoid those major catastrophes. And so the next 10 years, the green transition, it's really critical that we, we actually move it forward substantially. And it was on its way, but it wasn't happening fast enough to prevent 
the major effects that have been foreseen. And I think it's the view of the Global Wind Energy Council that we would need to be installing 100 gigawatts of wind energy every year for the next 10 years, right? Doubling that after that period, if we have any chance of keeping ourselves on that 1.5 degree pathway. And we weren't on that path before COVID. So now we need to see how governments respond and, and how they really focus those recovery packages to try and increase that capacity going forward. So I would see that we have a real opportunity to advance the green transition, to take into account the global impacts that fossil fuels and global supply chains have. And we need to really act together on that. So renewable energy, what can we do with renewable energy? It's at least it's local, gives security of supply. As we've seen through this crisis, it's also continued to be a good source of employment. We need to keep the lights on. And the carbon intensity of the other technologies is such that if you want to take into account the impact on the environment, I don't think you have any other choice but to put more investment into renewables. So yeah, I hope we really can act together on this, act decisively, and that we treat it as the global challenge that it is and the global opportunity that it is now coming out of this COVID phase in the next months. And you mentioned the pace of change. I mean, that seems to be a key issue with the green transition, the renewable transition. It's sort of widely recognised the need for change. Every public survey that you see, it's it recognised and acknowledged. It's important, it's recognised. Just recently from Mori, there was a survey looking at climate change and comparing it to coronavirus. And respondents felt that, you know, climate change was as more important to address. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is recognised, but certainly pre-coronavirus, that pace of change wasn't happening quickly mm -hmm. enough. Obviously, mm -hmm. COVID has caused misery for millions and will continue to do so. And the human and economic cost is significant, but it does seem there could be an opportunity here that does finally wake us up. We listened to the science with COVID. The science was there and it was acted on decisively mm -hmm. and quickly in, in, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. With climate change, it feels the science has been there for a long time. You mentioned the IPCC, report after report, you know, showing mm -hmm. that the science is there, the evidence is there, but we just haven't acted with that. Mm -hmm same sense of urgency and time is running out but climate change is happening now it's only going to get worse and there's no short-term I think with COVID everybody's seen how lives livelihoods societies economies can be massively impacted by an unprecedented global issue and climate change is that so perhaps it helps people frame the urgency and they've also experienced this interruption so not being able to drive anywhere not being able to fly anywhere okay we still for those who have not been personally impacted by the virus itself they're still surviving that situation and our lives can in a way move on and i hope obviously improving now post-covid but perhaps that's a perspective that people can take away as well that they didn't have before Looking more widely, um, sort of topics around wind, Casey. As you know, we have a um, a survey of the top ten most frequently asked questions about wind power in search engines. One of the most frequently um, asked ones was around the kind of main pros and cons of wind power and how much you know, the world's energy needs can realistically be met by wind. But I mean, how do you see those pros and cons in today's market? So maybe starting with the first question about how much of our energy needs can realistically be met by wind. As I see it, there's still so much untapped potential in all markets for both onshore and offshore. I think academic studies from way back when had assumed that even if we built 
turbines of two and a half megawatts, which is half the capacity of what we're looking at now, then onshore wind alone could deliver more than 40 times the worldwide consumption of electricity, which is a massive overachievement and certainly we're not aiming for that. One thing we need to bear in mind is how we consume electricity. So wind of itself is not really going to deliver that match of output to your demand. So that needs to be balanced with other technologies and you need to consider how you get the electricity from one place to another. So PV would be a great complement to wind. Demand close to the generating sites is also better. So there's other things to think about, of course, but essentially there is limitless green power from wind and solar around the world. At the moment though I think it's clear we're not really using our full potential so the European Commission has published reports noting that none of the European countries are using their full potential and I think it was just three percent of land is needed for solar and maybe 15 percent of land for wind would be enough to cover the total energy demand of the EU just from renewable energy. And if we wanted to do that, if we wanted to head towards our 2050 goals within the European Union for this climate neutral economy, then we need to multiply the power we generate from solar and wind by eight times to get there. And the figures always sound pretty incredible. I mean, going back to my college days in the mid-1990s, the figures around the power that renewable energy could provide, you know, they've, they've always been there. But as you said, at the moment, we're just not realising that potential. And what's what's holding things back then if all that potential mm-hmm. is there? And mm-hmm. there's always, again, you know, surveys after surveys showing the level of public support for renewable energy. But, you know, we're not where we need to be. Yeah, well, it's never simple in society. There's people, there's local conditions, there's regulation, there's investment requirements, there's laws. So I think development of wind energy in established markets, high population density locations is challenging because of the change that that brings to people's environment and how they feel about it. So in general, the younger generations are very positive about wind turbines, specifically how they look. And as far as I see, the older generation may be less so. And that then plays into local planning regulations and how you have to consult and engage and and the position of maybe local politicians and how they feel about the objections of their residents to the visual impact change. But really, from all the surveys I've seen as well, the majority of people, and certainly in terms of the population in an area, it's never the majority that has a problem, but it's maybe a vocal minority. And that has to be taken into account in in how you design your sites and how you consult with the local communities um, or with the planning authorities on your projects. So that's really important. I think other things is that it's technological evolution. So we have started with very small wind turbines and the technology has moved massively. So really around the 70s and 80s was when turbines started to be produced commercially. And they were, compared to today's turbines, about 200 times smaller in terms of capacity. So things have really moved on now. And and with that continued technological development, we can then deliver much more energy from the same area of land. So I think that is really helping us. And we'll see more rapid growth in capacity and, and renewable energy in the years going forward, particularly as the offshore wind turbines are getting much, much larger. I mean, they're now twice as large in capacity and, and blade length than, than onshore wind turbines. So with the combination of both, I think we, we should see a lot more growth going forward. I think the other issues are, are maybe around the grid and having access in some markets. So it's not always a case of just connecting and letting your project work. So a lot of investment has to go into what can be very old grid capacity in many markets. So that's another challenge. 
And we come on to um, offshore in a bit more detail in a second, but just two interesting points I found particularly interesting. I found there was a generational one that, you know, kind of attitudes among younger people are very different. And I guess, you know, today's younger generation will be tomorrow's voting generation, but we don't have time to wait for that transition to occur. What can be done? What can governments do to, to help facilitate more wind generation in, in those countries where we are, you know, kind of more densely populated and, and those are issues? Well, I do think it's important that the approach is developed by the government in the context of their people and their populations and their local setup, their local planning laws. It's not something that an individual developer can change. I mean, the, the amount of effort to go into that and the difference of opinion from one community to another or just trying to deal with local planning laws that are maybe not favourable to wind. It's really not that easy for an individual developer to make a difference there. But if the governments were able to emphasise and really recognise the importance of installing more renewable energy technologies in order to achieve these goals related to climate change and to a carbon neutral economy, then that would be a first step. And the way they could waterfall that through their countries would need to be linked to planning laws, use of land, how considerations are balanced in terms of maybe visual impact versus carbon saving. So that would really help. I think it's difficult when you start to talk about impacts on neighbourhoods and on people. So I think the way that they're consulted and how the issues are explained, how they have a voice, how they get to raise maybe ideas around optimising locations or sites, I think that's important. You see in some markets where the government puts more effort into identifying wind-friendly zones where they're preferred planning for wind energy, so that can also help developers focus their efforts better. But certainly not a a simple topic, and I, I think in some markets they've maybe approached it in a more structured way that helps get that scale more quickly and for everybody to just accept that this is, it's always going to be a compromise, but this is a way to take the energy transition forward in a specific market. And away from more densely populated countries, and I'm sure many of those people who object would say, why don't you build them where there aren't any people? And if we look at those countries which have kind of large, wide, open areas, which are largely uninhabited and perfect for wind, this is where the grid presumably becomes an issue, as we're just dealing with now a more decentralised source of energy generation, and where the wind's blowing and where may be great for sighting wind, typically may not be an area that has any grid connections in place. Yeah, definitely. In in Scotland, in offshore even, we've got projects that are huge offshore projects very well designed very quickly permitted because they're very sensitively placed but when they're looking to secure a long-term revenue stream and competing for that in the contract difference scheme in the UK they can't compete with projects cited in England because the grid costs the use of system costs for Scotland are so high compared to those in England so that's a real challenge it doesn't seem quite right that you're penalized for a well-cited windy project because you're further away from the demand, but you actually would be contributing massively to that specific nation's carbon reduction target. So I think there could be some more work done there in some markets. But generally, yes, the the grid, the cost of that and the distance is really um, something that needs to be understood on a market basis, for sure. And the onus on addressing that is, is with the grid operator, with government says there's not, as a developer, not much that can be done, presumably. Yeah, I think it, again, has to be looked at strategically, taking into account the legal system and the technical system and setup that you have, and then taken forward with the mindset to really try and achieve your overall national goals, not just maintain how you've always done it, the grid, or um, 
just to have them separately considered. We've seen in Australia uh, massive issues for solar projects in particular, a massive boom in development, and that was encouraged by local state governments who were not then thinking through with the grid providers how they would actually get those projects connected to be compatible with the grid code, to get the energy from where it's generated to the demand. And that's really had an impact on, I think, more billions of Australian dollars of investment have been impacted through that failure to bring together a strategic picture and have foresight over really realising those projects. And we've spoken a few times now about offshore wind. And aside from the obvious challenge, it would seem, you know, a logical place in terms of having those wide uninhabited areas and really able then to capitalise, you know, on, on the sheer size um, of area that you're then able to install wind farms in. Mm-hmm. And I'm now regularly reading in the media, again, coming back to the theoretical potential that offshore on its own could easily meet all of the world's energy needs. I mean, again, your views on this, have we even started to scratch the surface of the potential mm-hmm. of offshore? yeah well probably yes we've scratched it but certainly there's a, a lot more to come so i think the expectation is between the end of last year and 2030 that the capacity would increase by a factor of six or so and that would mostly be in european and apac markets and then if you add in further evolutions of technology so floating wind for example then the forecast would increase even further so there's certainly a lot to come there and actually the growth since i guess the last six seven years has been substantial every year so maybe like an annual 20% increase in capacity so that's not bad Uh, most of that so about three quarters of that I would say has been in in the European region and the UK remains the biggest global offshore market as of the end of last year but we expect China would take that over in the next few years so definitely a lot of growth potential and um, I think the reason why it hasn't really got to the same point as onshore just yet is, is really just a technological evolution we had to get it right onshore we've gone up in scale onshore then there were in parallel a few in the last yeah, 10 20 years smaller offshore turbines being tested and as the ability to deal with that harsher offshore environment has really evolved and we've worked on the supply chains in markets like the UK only because really the government committed to growing that sector and really giving investors the perspective and the turbine suppliers the perspective that here is a market that will be around for a very long time here's a stable regulatory framework for you here's the way that you'll be able to to realise the value from your projects, please come and invest. Only because of that do you have really a cost reduction that really brings forward massive scale. So that's certainly not where we are in the Asian markets yet. It's certainly not where we are in many other markets of the world, but that's something that needs to be continuously worked on and developed. So you couldn't wait for that to happen. You have to get your turbines, you have to get your green energy on the ground. So that's great that the onshore market has grown so much and that will continue in parallel because the scale and the time of developing offshore particularly in new markets in Asia is such that you can't wait for those projects to come around you just have to keep going with onshore as well. And presumably the barriers are higher I'm guessing there must be like fewer developers in the offshore market for that very reason. Certainly in the early days it was a small number of players I think that's grown massively now there have been oil and gas companies coming in investment funds smaller developers have grown or partnered with utilities utilities are taking big positions in the market you've got some dedicated companies that only do offshore so actually what we're seeing is it's really quite a mixed bag of players and a very uh, large range of and large number of players now 
And that's good because it brings competitiveness. It also brings opportunities to partner, to combine resources. And that's certainly how we're looking at the market as a real opportunity for Biobuff to bring its specialist experience as a developer to maybe work with local developers in emerging markets or partners who want to share that risk and the workload related to these very large offshore projects. So again, we're talking about a lot of potential, everything moving in the right direction. But are we moving quickly enough? Probably never <laughs> quickly enough. I I think we are a, a collection of different nations and, and that means the sovereignty and the desire to do it your own way is always there. It's not as if the experience in one market is then transferred and directly built upon by another, unfortunately. And I think that's why you tend to see these lags or these timelines until the markets can really get up to scale. So what could we do to make it go any quicker? I think it would need cross-market, governmental and and private cooperation on a higher level with a real drive and commitment to make things happen and to try and transfer knowledge across from one region to another. And and that's not something that's simple to facilitate at all. And there are international associations related to wind and other renewables technologies that try to help that and are certainly available as a resource and a place to go and try to push these discussions with government. So, So that does help. But it's a lot about people and trust and taking control of things themselves. So I think it's, it's difficult to speed up in some of these places. And we touched on markets there and some really interesting emerging markets coming through, which um, we'll come on to in just a second. But just before we do, you mentioned at the start of your answer about floating winds. A lot of people are obviously familiar with offshore wind and a lot will also be familiar with um, floating solar, which was a topic from a previous podcast. But floating wind, I expect most people will be less familiar with. How does that work and what's the difference apart from the obvious, I guess? (laughs) Well, um, it's still not a fully commercial technology, so it's an industry in development, but with a lot of potential. For us as a developer, it's certainly interesting to follow that, to, to try and look at where we could play in that in that market. We have spent some time researching the different technologies. There are a few leaders in the market who have already got their technologies up and are testing those. Maybe some of them even have bank financing. And um, even in some markets like the Scotland process coming up in Scotland, they are running a competitive tender for seabed leases and specifically have identified quite a large number of areas that would be suitable for floating technologies. So that is a real driver of getting developers and technology providers together to really try and make this happen at scale. Well, there are lots of technical differences floating and and, uh, traditional offshore. So the floating technology enable you to go much, much deeper and they require a lot less digging and concrete. So they are tethered And then there are different ways to enable them to float above the water. It's really based on oil and gas technology that's been around for many years with these floating oil rigs. So using that and applying it to wind turbines, is actually not even really a revolution. or It's just an evolution of a technology, I would say. So it's interesting to see. And um, I imagine that market will focus on a few core bankable floating foundations and that those will then be combined with the turbine technologies we know of today the, the large providers Siemens Gamesa for example or Vestas and um, and then that will become a market where you, you know where to go for your bankable floating technology and the scale the potential there is definitely massive yeah. 
So onshore, offshore, floating, some exciting technological advancements, innovations coming through. Just coming back to markets, we have some now that are in a, I guess, a pretty mature phase. Lots of Europe, I guess, falls into that category. And then those are more emerging. You mentioned Asia earlier. But how do you see the different challenges and opportunities moving forward for the more mature markets compared to those who are now starting to emerge? I think there are lots of different geographical challenges, cultural challenges to the way in which you can work with a community or a government is different in many emerging markets. The regulation, the transparency, possible concerns around investing in foreign currencies and how do you get international banks into those markets? How are the maybe government incentive schemes structured? Are they really bankable in the sense that we're all used to in, say, Western Europe? So those are a lot of challenges. Just the people, boots on the ground is very important for wind development, particularly also for should be for any technology development or infrastructure development. But having people who are from a market, engaged and embedded in a market, who can work to international standards around quality and bankability. Those are just people and organisational challenges that we deal with when we enter new markets. Then the different geographical aspects. So Japan, for example, it's got many mountains and not much free land for wind turbines or solar projects and so that the way that you cite those how you deal with the more extreme weather patterns there than we have in Europe those are other technical challenges that you need to deal with then there's maybe the land ownership it's not always so clear who owns what piece of land in various markets how do you find out about that and make sure that you're dealing with the right person that's that's a real practical challenge that we've faced in some markets again like Japan versus maybe Vietnam where you have a more of a state-controlled land ownership scheme so you're able to develop a site and then deal with that in a more higher level perspective. Where markets are maturing again, you know, thinking of Europe, do you see more of the projects you're developing moving from west to east? Is that a trend? or The most booming markets are still France. Spain has picked up a lot in the last few years. Germany's got a lot of potential, but there are challenges with the way that the regulations around planning, permitting work, around securing land. So they're not delivering the volume that they are aiming to deliver. So I think something would structurally related to their regulations might need to change to enable that. But certainly some markets, so Greece and um, Poland are markets that are of interest to us and others. And there are signs that the potential there, so around the future for wind development and where you can site it in Poland might become more relaxed and open up some more opportunities. Also looking at markets within the African continent, not all of them are set up for wind, but maybe more appropriate for solar. But there are some where there's good wind resource and, and really a need for clean, renewable energy. So we're certainly focusing on a couple of those at the moment. So like South Africa or Kenya, for example. And what about the Americas, particularly North America? How do you see that evolving, particularly with some of the political challenges there at the moment? Yeah, well, I guess the American states, the way they're set up, they're in some ways like different countries. So you have to understand the local conditions, the local power markets, the local permitting for each of those, and each has its own challenges and opportunities. So um, it's not particularly a one-size-fits-all market, and it's just the sheer scale of the country you really need to get around. To, to have a local presence, then you do need to have people closer to those communities and to those stakeholders. 
so Bivar specifically, we're relatively small in the US market. We have more of a niche approach where we focus on difficult projects. And actually, we have a really um, good team with a lot of experience that can focus on solving problems and driving forward difficult developments. So for us, that's that's been a strategy that's worked relatively well so far. And I think to grow, uh, you would need to think about those different states and, and how to deal with those. You mentioned Africa, and if we think of the less developed world and the kind of benefits of renewable energy that can bring, and where I guess we're dealing with a less centralised energy network already, is there a speed of transition there? Because you are starting, there's a different starting point that as renewables grow, they can grow more quickly? I think it's definitely a challenge in terms of the grid, but yes, you don't have necessarily the legacy. So there is maybe less forced change in some ways. You don't need to decommission so many old power plants, but really for renewables, being able to generate locally is not a problem, but being able to transmit that energy to, as I said, a, de- a demand node is really dependent on having that grid infrastructure in place. So depending on the local conditions around the revenue, so is there a government support scheme? Does the revenue cover building a project and maybe building some grid infrastructure yourself? That could always be the case. Or is the government looking to invest in infrastructure and encourage renewables development in a certain area? That can be a real enabler. Or do you really need to try and solve the problem yourself and provide local distributed energy to farmers, to communities, in which case wind combined with solar and maybe storage could be a solution or solar with storage could be a solution. So I think for sure it's it's maybe more of a technical challenge where you don't have that advanced grid set up in place, but it's not necessarily the end of the story. We're coming to the end of the interview here, Katie. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, starting with the current health crisis. We've talked technologies, offshore, onshore, floating. We've talked about markets. I mean, looking at the next you know, five to 10 years, say, what, what in your view are going to be the big trends, the big innovations to look out for? Well, I think the turbine technology itself is constantly evolving. So we will we'll see more and bigger turbines. I think for offshore, we've mentioned floating wind and, and I would look at that as a really interesting trend and an area for future development and opening up a large area of the offshore for us. I think in terms of onshore technology development, there is a limit generally because of things like aviation interference, radar interference in terms of the turbine size. So there I would see maybe more innovation around, say, storage or combining wind and solar together, maybe a little bit more around innovative ownership structures involving communities, crowdfunding. These are all things that we've started doing and I know other developers do too in some markets. And then data and digitalization, I think that's something that will drive forward different ways of assessing performance, maybe tracing green certificates. And if we have more of a push, a green deal a more stimulus package that really tries to link up countries and drive renewable energy investment around number of markets maybe that will really help us so it's kind of the security and the trust that this is um, I'm investing in renewable energy and I'm renewable energy is coming out of those plants and I know where it's going so that could be an interesting development as well. We have a road to travel yet and, and we need to travel it quickly but as we are here on Global Wind Day 2020 overall you're positive about the future and how it looks? Yeah for sure yeah I, I think we can do a lot more there are a lot of challenges for us but there's also a lot of 
support and recognition that this is a really critical area for the world. So the green energy transition, decarbonising. And so I think with the experience we as an industry have built up with what we can do with the technology, if there are more enablers, then we can only grow and, and be more successful than we've been in the past. So I would hope that those things fall into place and we can really make even more of a difference to the carbon and the environmental impact that we're all having on the world. A good point to leave it, Katie. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Um, thanks to everyone for listening as well. If you're interested in more episodes in our podcast series or exploring more content on this topic, just visit our website at rethink-energy.com. Thanks to everyone for listening and talk to you again soon.